Hello and welcome to Self Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with Stephanie Ceballo about culturally sensitive care for Latinx individuals, intersectionality, and social justice-informed mental health. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is Stephanie Ceballo. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I identify as an Afro-Latinx woman. You're a clinician. Um, You work with us here at Alma in your private practice. Would you mind telling us how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. I feel that my journey into mental health counseling is a long one. I originally started learning about psychology in my undergrad at SUNY New Paltz and didn't actually graduate with a master's in psychology. I went in for English with a minor in psychology. And when I graduated in 07, I found it really difficult to find employment. I ended up finding employment with a company called BRC and they serviced a lot of individuals who struggled with mental health issues. So that really started my career into mental health. The longer I worked for the company, I realized I didn't really know a lot about mental health and really thought it was really important to go back and learn more. I really liked working in the field and wanted to learn more, wanted to learn what I can do to help. And then I went and got a master's in mental health counseling. And that's how I kind of became a clinician and learned more about mental health counseling and started working in the field. Awesome. That's so cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about that initial job that you had? Remind me that what was the name? Yes. So the company I worked for was called B or is called BRC and it stands for Bowery Residence Committee. So the company itself worked as a support system in the community to help individuals of color who were struggling with homelessness. And these were individuals who had chronic histories of homelessness and also had mental health concerns. So the goal of the, or the mission of the company was to try to get individuals mental health care while sort of reintegrating them into society. It's a really good company. And it really started my passion in in mental health. I really saw the need for service and working with individuals and really starting to understand how mental health impacts different aspects of someone's life. Yeah, that's so interesting. And also seems like it was targeting so many things at once, like homelessness and living with mental illness and specifically with people of color. Did that kind of inform your particular focus as you started your private practice and into your clinical work? So Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 created a term. It's called intersectionality, and it refers to individuals' intersections where individuals' lives intersect. So that means like race intersecting with gender, intersecting with class and how these intersections play a role in how people identify and their experiences socially. And my understanding of that didn't come into my career much later, unfortunately. I'm very happy with where I'm at now and my continued growth in my consciousness of intersectionalities and sort of race theory. But that came about a little bit before I started my program at Montclair. So I'm currently in a PhD program for counseling, supervision, and education at Montclair University. 
And a lot of the work there is on social justice counseling. So it's the belief of how does our social roles and how we identify impact us and how it impacts us in relation to society and the opportunities and privileges that we have and don't have. And I think that the work there has really allowed me to see how those intersections really play a role in how people identify and how not only white supremacy comes into play, but how those systems of oppression really affect people of color and people at the margins. Wow, that's so fascinating and so exciting that you're studying more of that and getting more uh, specialized in that area. I'm really thankful, too, that you kind of broke down this term intersectionality, because I know it's one that is tossed around quite a bit in our vernacular and in uh, kind of the public forum. And I know you, you gave us a great definition, but can you speak to a little bit more of how you see that play out in your clinical work and the clients that you see? Yeah. So with regards to viewing individuals from an intersectional approach, you really want to see how individuals who are living at those margins, whether that's being a woman of color or being a part of the LGBT community really impacts their life. The thing about living in the United States and in the times that we're living in, it's very apparent that we are living in a time where there is a system of oppression and there's a lot of racial inequities. You can't turn on the news without seeing things on the Black Lives Matter. We had the George Floyd case go on. So it's, it's really important to acknowledge that individuals that are living in the U.S. are not all living in the same manner. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, white supremacy is, is the belief that one group is inherently better than another group in our country. And that plays a role in how people of color view themselves, whether the images that they receive in the media, what laws intersect and help them, the way the system is set up to disenfranchise people. And with an understanding of that, we can start to empathize more with the challenges and barriers that people have and recognize that, hey, yes, these challenges exist, but there's something that we can do about it. There are ways in which we can advocate. There are ways in which we can communicate those things where people learn that these challenges are not just about you not being a great human being or struggling with your mental health, but there are systems in place that prohibit us from succeeding. And I think that empowers clients to recognize that, hey, there's something that I can do about this. Thank you for sharing that. I I think it's so important and and fascinating that you are taking this work into your clinical work because, you know, I think that the kind of maybe stereotype around therapy are kind of are where we think when we think of the traditional, you know, psychoanalytic therapy is laying on a couch and this one individual fixing you essentially, right? And and really what you're saying and what I feel like a lot of these conversations we're having are that you can't leave the context. You can never, you're never seeing a person in a vacuum, even though you're seeing them in this closed room or you're seeing them in this Zoom room now, that you're really never taking them out of the context from which they live their lives. And so really taking that in, in its fullness seems like the only way to really take in a human being as a whole person. 
Yeah, I think it's incredibly important to view the person as a whole and to see how their identity is impacted by the place that they live in. Um, and when we fail to do that, you know, we, before it was colorblind mentality, like, well, I don't see color. Well, if you don't see color, you can't see the issues that someone is going through because not everyone is treated the same. And that is very apparent in the times that we're living in. So yeah, I think that this approach is very important in the counseling field and in, in different aspects of, of our lives because Kimberly Crenshaw isn't a therapist, she's a lawyer. It came about because of what she was seeing in the representation of her client. So it, it incorporates all aspects of our lives, not just counseling. She's so fascinating. I, I've read a bit of her, of her work on, on critical race theory and how, you know, as we're kind of in this racial reckoning of a, of a time right now, and many people are trying to quote unquote, do the work. And what does that, you know, what does that mean to really educate yourself? And she talks about critical race theory as, is not a training, quote unquote, but but really a practice of integrating race and racism in society and taking that. It's not a not a noun, but but really a verb. Like it's not a static thing, but it's it's an evolving practice to kind of always take that as a I mean a constant variable in when looking at any person or systemic issue. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that one of the great things about critical race theory is that it takes the precedent of, you know, it acknowledges that there's that historical racial hierarchy and that people live within that. And that for hundreds of years, you know, there has been this belief system by by groups of people of who deserves to be in power and how does that impact other people along the lines. Like even if you were to think about like feminist theory, you know, in the 1900s, when feminist theories first came about in the first wave of feminism, it was about women wanting the right to vote and the right to have property, right? And then in the second wave, it was about economics, women wanting to work outside of the home. But Black women were always working outside of the home. So it didn't take into consideration that intersection of women being not only women, but being women of color. And then the third wave comes along with Angela Davis, you have Kimberly Crenshaw that says, hey, wait, we have to look at these intersections. So it, it really is important to see that component of how race impacts and informs our daily lives and how we have to integrate that into the counseling profession. I say that because I'm a therapist, but yeah, how we integrate it into the counseling profession and how we view people. Yeah. And I, I know that according to your Alma profile and <laughs> from what we know of you, that uh, a lot of your clients are people of color. And I wanted to ask, are they particularly in the Latinx community or, or do you see kind of a wider range than that? Yeah, I definitely see a wider range of clients. So my clients, they're, they're from all spectrums uh, of different racial and ethnic identities. And I think it's important to work with different individuals from different intersections and different identities um, because it allows us to stay informed. We want to be able to do the work. We want to understand where people are coming from. We want to understand how their culture and race impacts their perspectives and their lived experiences. Because what, as for instance, what I as a Latinx individual encounter and as a cisgender woman, right, who identifies as a woman, who was born as a woman, 
is not the same as a transgender Latinx woman or a person whose gender fluid may experience. And it's important for us to be open and work with individuals who have different identities because of that. In this series, we're talking a lot about identity and a lot about how that informs our mental health and how we see ourselves. And I know as, you know, as someone who who you identify as Latinx, work with other other people in that community, obviously that is not a monolith. Uh, do you see that 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 the labeling or the collective naming of that identity is helpful? Um, are there shortcomings of that? How do you kind of see that play out in the community? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really loaded question, right? Because <laughs> Latinos, Latinx individuals, they choose to identify differently based on where they're from. So the experiences of someone who was born in Mexico, who's an immigrant and immigrates to the United States is not going to be the same experience that a Mexican-American individual may have or someone from Honduras or someone from Spain. And I think that the reason why individuals who are part of the Latinx community don't have that monolith title and don't, and I have all these different identities is because there's, despite a lot of similarities in the Latino community, what happens is, is that there's also a lot of differences. Part of that could be because of colonization. Like some people don't choose to utilize the term Hispanic because what it might mean. There's and the same for Latinx or Latino or Latina. So I think that individuals, we struggle a little bit with that because we're just coming from so many different culture, so many different perspectives within the same group of the Latin community. And that's not necessarily a weakness. I think that recognizing and celebrating that diversity is also important. There is something that we lose when we just kind of group individuals together. And it goes back to the the critical race theory where race is socially constructed. Do we even need to, you know, classify people by race? and why we do that and who tells us to do that, right? And what is the purpose of doing that? Yeah, totally. I think that there is there's kind of a cognitive offloading of collecting and, and putting people into a box, especially outside of that community. Like there is more bandwidth for nuance within your own familiar realm, right? So then I think that there can be kind of a... Uh, yeah, that's a great question to ask. Is it coming from the outside who is saying, this is your community and I'm putting you here? Or is it coming from inside the community? And of course, again, that is kind of a loaded question too, because of course it's both. And of course there are pros and cons to that and behind what's the motivation. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And I know just, just going into a bit more of the nuances and the differences within the Latinx community. Could you talk to us a bit about colorism and, and how that can kind of shape an individual's sense of self and how you've seen that play out in your community and the communities you serve? Yeah, I mean, colorism is, is definitely very real, and especially in the Latinx community. I myself am, am lighter skinned, so I recognize that I have skin privilege. But much of what is happening in the U.S. is also very relevant in what happens in 
the Latinx community because what we're seeing in the US specifically is that individuals are saying, hey, Black Lives Matter, you know, that I'm being targeted and I'm being oppressed based on my skin tone. Well, that actually also happens in the Latinx communities. In the Latino community, in my experience, the Dominican communities, and this could be true, and is, and I definitely think it is true in other sects of the Latino community. But in the Dominican Republic, you know, there is this covert racism. So in, in the Dominican community, there is this covert racism that occurs with your skin color. And because the Dominican Republic shares an island with Haiti, there's a lot of belief systems of what does it mean to be a true Dominican? What does it mean to be a Haitian? And how does your identity in the Dominican Republic play a role in your rights there? Well, alongside of the Dominican side of the island, you have individuals who are lighter skin, darker skin, and to be lighter skin is to be considered more beautiful, it's to, be, to have more privileges. People view you differently when you have lighter skin. Now, these are not things that I ascribe to, I don't believe in these things, but it is definitely something that comes up in the culture. And I think I, re I recently saw a documentary about this and they were talking about in Mexico, this is something that happens as well, where lighter skin actors get better playing roles. Um, we see that in how the media portrays whiteness in America. So it, colorism is something that not only exists in the Latin community, but it, it exists worldwide. I also, you know, just to, to speak on that, I also had a conversation with my friend who's Asian American. And one of the things that he was saying is that it's the same in Asian communities where lighter skin is viewed as more preferred than to have darker skin. So you start to see this sort of covert and overt actually discrimination for individuals who have darker skin in the Latinx community. Wow, just so disturbing how pervasive that is and, and far reaching in, in so many communities. And how have you seen that in your, in your work with clients as, as maybe, is that something that people are very aware of in the people that you work with um, kind of whether they are lighter skinned or darker skinned, that there is this kind of understanding of that or the, the way that they're being perceived or even being, you know, white passing. Is that, is that something that you guys discuss in the therapy context? Yeah. I mean, I think that talking about being white passing and what our skin tone means to us is very important. It has come up in counseling sessions with my clients. Unfortunately, some of them, some of the conversations aren't as great. You know, I have clients who want to experiment with skin bleaching because they view that their skin is too dark because of the messages that they receive. So there's almost this, this issue with self-esteem and self-hate that comes along with wanting to be identified as having lighter skin. And those are the internalized messages that we receive from the media. When, they, when we talk about representation in our movies, representation in what is considered beautiful in the magazines, what are the images that we are receiving? And what is the message that individuals start to get from these you know, movies and films and TV shows? Who are the main characters and why are they considered attractive? Well, that continues to play a role in how people view colorism and how people view their skin tone. And it, and it is sad. I think that the, the goal is to start to address and provide the language that people can recognize what is happening and what does it mean? You know, so there's this concept 
so Cheryl Harris, she, she coined this whiteness as a property. And what she was referring to was um, how images with people of color, how they might feel when they start to receive that, that the, the belief pattern that white is better, right? So it, it goes into that perspective of colorism because the messages that people of color are receiving is that being black isn't beautiful, being Latinx isn't beautiful. And I think we're making waves against that now. I think that there's more messages now in the media that says that we're really appreciating and integrating our cultures into what is considered beautiful. But for a really long time, people have had this perception that if you are not white, if you do not look like a white person, then you are not considered beautiful. And it really impacts the self-esteem of so many people of color not just the Latinx community, but other people of color. So it is really important to be aware of those, those belief systems and why we should broach those topics in counseling. I'm so glad you brought up that idea of representation is so massive because, you know, it's, it's addressing systemic inequity and uh, access and barriers to entry that have been in place forever. And then also... I'm so glad you brought up the other thing that it's addressing is this more, I don't want to use subliminal because it's, it's, is overt, but this representation of what is acceptable and beautiful in the collective culture's eyes that I think is such an important thing that of course, I'm sure you find in your work with clients gets internalized and compounded over years of seeing that and, and maybe not even having language for it. Um, at all times, but just over time, uh, growing up, being, you know, flooded with these images of people who don't look like you. Right. And what, what images are we receiving about the people that do look like us, right? Uh, For a really long time, there was this belief system that Black or Latinx people were, you know, hedonistic and animal-like, and that they were not even, they were subhuman. So, the images that people do receive, you know, in the media and in those representations are also very important because they shape how we identify and how other people view us. Even in the language, when we talk about, you know, when we're talking about neighborhoods and what a good neighborhood looks like, well, what does that mean? How are we using that language? And how is that interpretation coming across from those films, right? When we see films about characters talking about going to the ghettos, what population lives in those ghettos? So it, it is really important to think about how the things that we witness daily impact us. And do you find in your work that that, I guess, and you've spoken about this a bit already and and maybe some kind of trying to distance yourself from from the culture um, or from, you know, maybe in, in skin bleaching or in any kind of form of trying to kind of disassociate. And I don't mean to put that word in, in their mouths, of course, not knowing them, but, but have you found in your practice that that is a common occurrence of, you know, this kind of trying to re-identify with, with the majority culture? Right. So individuals in counseling who come in and have this dissonance when it comes to their identity and wanting to identify as as white, right? So yeah, I mean, I I think it's definitely relevant and I think it definitely does occur. 
I think if your whole life you're receiving messages that being a white person is the ideal, that that is what beauty is and everything associated with whiteness is great and everything associated with being black or a person of color isn't, then there is going to be a push to not associate with that. You know, myself, I, I feel like when I grew up, I grew up in the United States. Um, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. And then there was this push to, to assimilate into American culture. But what did that mean at the time? You know, growing up in the 90s and in the early 2000s, what did it mean for me as a Dominican person, Dominican American to come into school and, and see that individuals of my culture were being interpreted negatively or being viewed negatively in media, you know? And I think that plays a, he a heavy role in how people identify. There is, um, Ferdman and Galeo's model of Latino identity, they talk about that dissonance, that the idea that individuals want to be associated more so with what is considered privileged. And there's, there's some privilege in being white. Yeah. And I'm, gosh, there's so many questions and things I want to ask you within this. So forgive me if I ramble for a little bit and just ask you to speak to it because I I have so many, many thoughts because I, I don't want to ask you to, to speak to, you know, this is how we fix it or this is how we go about change, but you're just placed in such a unique setting, having, you know, both getting your, your training in, um, in more social justice oriented therapy. And then also in the, in your clinical practice, working with individuals I'm just thinking about, you know, how you would see a client coming in and and having this existing notion that has been affirmed for years and years that they're on the outside of what is beautiful, good or and you know ascribe any other adjective to it. And so how do you as working with the individual do do you work from a place of that is incorrect <laughs> although it is something that you have been having to consume and live with your whole life? And how do we reclaim your identity as a person of color and as the communities and identities that you have and own? Or do we, you know, but that also involves this like macro work of this, you know, larger sense of, of social justice and, and what are the changes that need to be made at a much larger systemic level? So I'm just curious in what you know, at you as, as kind of occupying these spaces, what does that look like for you right now? How would you like to see it change? Mm -hmm. Right. So thinking about how to address issues with resistance and identity is really difficult. I am not an expert. I'm still a student learning and I consider myself a student mostly because I think we're always constantly learning and shifting our ideas and perspectives and hopefully growing because of those things. I think the first step is to empathize. I don't think I would ever go in and say, no, you're, you're completely wrong with how you identify, you've been brainwashed. Because I think part of therapy is about identifying and empathizing with one's lived experiences and acknowledging that that is their lived experience and this is how they view the world. So I can't just go in and say, no, you're wrong. And I, and I don't necessarily think that their perspectives are wrong. They're a product of how they grew up. They're a product of what they experienced in their home environment, socially, 
regarding class, their socioeconomic status. Pamela Hanks does this really good addressing model where it kind of talks about all of these stages of privilege and lack of privilege and exploring that and how people have been oppressed and how they have oppressed others really starts to open up that conversation with where do your perspectives come from? Where do you view these things? The other component of that is really doing the work as a counselor and the therapist and starting to learn more about those intersections, learning more about Dr. Sue talks about microaggressions and how people experience their day-to-day life. So recognizing that someone may want to identify with a dominant culture because it might feel easier, because it, they might associate like, hey, you know, I just, it just seems so much better to identify this way than to identify with a group of individuals that are viewed as hedonistic or as criminals and not recognize that that system of, of oppression and racism puts individuals of color in situations where they are incarcerated at much higher rates, you know, that there's laws that discriminate against others. You know, even if we were to think about voting rights, women did not get the chance or the opportunity to vote until 1920, but women of color did not vote until 1964. So the understanding how those intersections play a role is important because it shifts our ability to empathize with our clients. So I think that that's the first step. The second step is recognizing why that resistance exists right? and understanding and acknowledging that these are coping strategies that individuals have, have developed. And this is generally how they view the world. I think the goal is to help have those conversations, start broaching the conversation while you're developing that rapport with your client. And, and hopefully you can really start to integrate that language that you can put a name to what some of those experiences are. And people generally want to learn more about how they identify and how they're viewing the world. I think individuals want to feel heard. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yes, yes. I, I really just wanted to hear your expertise on on all of this. I mean, at everything that you're saying is is just really enlightening and, and very thoughtful. And I'm really thankful for your insight that you're sharing with us. And I also am curious, and I've, I've talked to um, a few other people in these conversations about this, but kind of the stigma or lack thereof around mental health and getting help and where you kind of feel like there needs to still be shifts made or where there's, you know, still big accessibility issues. We know that at Alma, that's one of the reasons we exist is trying to make therapy more accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how have you seen that in your, in your clients and maybe in how they feel about therapy, maybe how their communities feel about therapy? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, I've been in the mental health counseling field for over 10 years now. And I think that in these 10 years, there has definitely been a huge shift in how people view mental health. I even think about like back in, I think it's 2007 with sort of like the whole Britney Spears fiasco um, and people not recognizing mental health and how she was struggling and how other individuals struggle. Now thinking about it in 2021 and viewing like, well, no, she must've been really going through things there versus it's just sort of like acting out. And I bring that up because I think that that's also part of the shift, right? How, how the media views talking about mental health issues. You know, now we have 
Netflix series on mental health. We have shows that talk about depression and that inclusion in those films and media and in the news is very important, uh, which also shifts the, the population's perspective of why mental health is so important. It also kind of comes to our government and how our government views mental health and providing those resources for people, especially people at those intersections and at the margins who desperately need it. You know, when I was doing um, my internship in 2011, 2022, there was this huge push for um, working with LGBTQIA plus community and of the lack of awareness or issues surrounding the community, how people identify, what their gender expression is, and the need for therapists to really start to understand you know, what that process is for people. And if you add race to it, that's another intersection to think about. So mental health, I feel, has come quite a long way. Um, I hope it continues to come quite a long way because I think that incorporating these issues like critical race theory or multicultural issues, we, we haven't done enough to incorporate it. I think we need to continue to have continuing education for therapists to continue to develop those identities and those practices so that when a client comes in and is talking about these issues, a therapist will know how to do the counseling approach, will know what approaches work best for that specific population given whatever the client is and what other, whatever other intersection the client is identifying with. But I, I, I think it's come a long way. I think we need to continue to advocate for more mental health resources for individuals. I think that there's still a lot of people at the margins that are not receiving that care. And then there are other issues that are, are coming up alongside of that. You know, unfortunately people of color and especially people in the LGBT community, they are at an extreme higher risk for suicide and depression, homelessness, and these issues are not being addressed. And how do we go about advocating for these things? Because these things are still very important. We need to make sure that people feel safe, that they feel empowered, that their voices matter, and we need to be there to support them. And again, I know that you've been kind of threading this throughout our conversation here, but just that intersectionality needs to be considered at every turn in a person's in a person's existence in society, truly, I was going to say in mental health, but in, in all existence in, in society. And, and I think, you know, as you talk about the people at the margins, that seems to be the ones who maybe hold multiple minority identities and that, yeah, we don't have the frameworks in place to best reach them or best care for them, it seems, but hopefully getting better. Yeah, I mean, I think that that work comes from, you know, from the therapist, it comes from people in general. I, I was very pleasantly surprised with regards to the Women's March and how successful that was. The Black Lives Matter March, the protests for George Floyd, these are ways in which you show solidarity um, in the community, saying that, you know, all of our lives matter. And, you know, we need to start to see that from a perspective of unity. So I think that, that that plays a giant role. And, and yeah, yeah, I think that that's kind of where, where we, we need to start heading, hopefully, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're hopefully leading the way in a lot of ways as you're kind of diving in deeper into bringing social justice into counseling um, and getting your, your doctorate there. Can you just 
explain for us more about what it means to to bring social justice into the therapy space? I know it's something that we've, you know, we've been talking about kind of throughout this conversation, but but what does that mean to you? Right. So bringing in social justice really means an acknowledgement that there are these systems put in place where people struggle, whether it's with advocacy because of their social situation, what class they're in, and how those things impact them and how we as therapists can advocate for them. A lot of the social justice work that I'm doing at Montclair revolves about learning more about how those intersections play a role and how they impact others. I recently did a presentation on Black feminism, and I had to go and dig deep about like how feminists have shifted throughout the years. And even looking at the timeline and history of the feminist movement, you could really see how people of color have really been left out for a big part of the feminist movement. And because of that intersectionality and the awareness that, hey, we as people of color are being left out in these decisions, right? And, and we live here. We, we are a part of the community. Our voices are not being heard. You know, our lives are not being valued, you know, because I identify as, let's say, like as a, a, a Black transgender woman, my, my identity is you differently than if I was a white woman or a white male. So I think that these things, understanding how that plays a role in how people identify and their lived experiences is important. And that's what the social justice counseling framework does. It allows you to integrate race into counseling. It allows you to recognize how we can advocate for others, what our strengths are, how we can incorporate that solidarity, and how can we make that more sustainable so that in the future, this continues to exist. And it's not something that is, a, is just a movement that just shows up and just disappears. We want this to be sustainable. We want individuals to recognize that this is a problem and change needs to occur. We're in, in such a moment in time, which, you know, I always, I always hesitate to say that because of course, like I'm a white woman and I have the privilege of getting to tune in and tune out, right? So I want to first and foremost say that. So, you know, as as Black Lives Matter and a lot of other racial inequities have been brought to the forefront of our cultural conversation, more people are engaging in this conversation. I obviously I don't want to say all, and obviously I don't want to say that all of a sudden, here we are in this moment, because really all it is is just an awakening to something that has been happening for a very long time. And so I I do want to preface it with that. But as we, we are in this kind of collective moment uh, where more attention is being placed on these inequities, it can just feel so big and so daunting. And I I just, I guess my question within that is, is how do you see this moment, like leveraging this moment in time to really make change? Um, do you see that this is, you know, a good thing that this is being brought so much into the forefront? Or do you see that like we're letting each other off the hook because it's become a, a posting a black square on social media or it's become this, you know, kind of virtue signaling responses have become more more apparent. 
just anything within that, how do you kind of see us taking this moment and really advocating for change? That's such a hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very difficult one because I think that identity is salient. I think that how people view racism is also sometimes salient, unfortunately. You know, I, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about George Floyd and the trial of, of Derek Chauvin. And I think for me, the conversation shifted to Micaiah Bryant and whether there was justification in what the police officer did. And, you know, I started to see a shift where with, you know, George Floyd, no, this is racism. You know, this is the oppression of, you know, black lives. And this is just an, another proof of police brutality. I started to see a shift in some of the voices where it, it almost, almost excusing this police officer. And I think that that is the complexity of racism and how overt it can be and how covert it can be. Because I think that is systemically you've learned that this is sort of the way of life and challenging that, challenging how people have lived for hundreds of years in the system of oppression is difficult. I think that the movement is a very powerful one you know, Black Lives came about because of Trayvon Martin in 2012. And here we are 2021 still talking about it. So I don't necessarily think it's going away. I think that one of the positive things that people are doing is that they are advocating. We're seeing some shifts in government. We're seeing more voices in government talk about white supremacy. We're talking about racism and how it has impacted the people's lives in America. However, we still need to create better laws. We need to reform things in the constitution where there is more equity with people, where we're recognizing that there is a system of racism in place that people of color are not treated the same way. And I think that that's lots of years of work. I think that, <laughs> I think it's not something that's going to happen overnight, unfortunately. And I think the goal is, is having that stamp, the racial stamina to deal with it, because I think that that's part of the problem is that people don't have that racial stamina. It is hard to talk about race all the time. It is exhausting, even as a person of color, it is exhausting. And how do we make sure that we are taking care of ourselves um, in this movement and being, and also showing solidarity with people. So it is, it is a, it's a lot, there's a lot that needs to be done um, and hopefully, we're, we're heading in the direction where people are starting to recognize more and more that there is this system of, of racism in place and that our lawmakers are hopefully recognizing that there needs to be change and change in where there is more equity because change can go both ways. And you know the goal is hopefully that people recognize that there needs to be something done for people who are really struggling in this, in this country um, because it is sad, it is it's very unfortunate I know that as as a therapist, you are talking with clients who a lot of what they're dealing with feels like it is outside of their control because it is systemic and it is racism. Um, and so how how do you in the therapy realm, how how do you feel like 
there can be a, sh- a shift in perspective or there can be a clarifying of identity or self and what what you do have control over. Also keeping in mind that, of course, we all have a part to play in advocating for social justice. Um, but yeah, how do you, those who, who are really at the margins, how are, how can we view mental health, what is in their control and how to kind of support that work? Yeah, very important question. I think that talking about racial and ethnic identity is so important. Recognizing how we identify is incredibly important, whether that's through your sexual orientation, through your cultural identification. And one of the reasons why it's so important to bring you know, racial and ethnic identity into the sphere of counseling is because we're talking about the language that we're using. We're making what was once invisible, visible, saying that, hey, we have inherent differences. Your culture may be different than the dominant culture, and that doesn't minimize your culture. You know, in fact, it, it empowers you to recognize that you've overcome challenges because you're not part of a dominant group. There's that resiliency in, in culture that really helps people adapt to living in a place where they, they sometimes don't feel welcome. So talking about mental health and talking about race and ethnic identity issues in the counseling are incredibly important because one, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Our, our cultures inform how we view mental health. Our cultures also inform what we consider mental health. You know, in the, the Latinx community, there is this concept of talking to spirits of our loved ones, and that's not considered a mental health issue. It's considered, you know, part of the culture and understanding where people are coming from and those cultural implications are incredibly important because it makes a difference with whether of how we diagnose people. It makes a difference with how people are interpreting their lives and what it means to them to hear these voices and to hear the spirits of their ancestors and whether that's something that they find supportive, you know? So we, we have to really incorporate that cultural component into mental health. Yeah, and I, I think in addition to making the invisible visible, it also challenges our complacency. It challenges our complacency when it comes to seeing how we view ourselves as part of this larger whole. So I think that that's one of the reasons why talking about race and ethnicity and mental health in the counseling field is very important and also in the counseling session. And, and recognizing that we also have to provide that education, that you know the, the struggles that we're experiencing, whether it's depression, anxiety, that these things are normal, that people generally feel anxious, that people sometimes feel depressed based on what's going on in their lives. And when it's starting to get really bad, why seeking help is so important. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just wanted to ask you if there's anything else that I didn't ask you about or that we didn't get to talk about that you want to mention. Yeah, I mean, I I think that one of the things I would encourage people to do is read, read more. I found several, several books very helpful and definitely encouraging you and challenging you to be better. I, I sometimes hear from, from clients that, you know, like, oh, my, my previous therapist never talked about these things or it was never addressed. And, you know, I think that that's unfortunately sometimes something that happens because of programs, mental health programs or counseling programs sometimes don't incorporate those things. But 
I, you know, it's almost like a challenge to, to other counselors to, to incorporate that and to learn more about how people's lived experiences impact them. So that, I guess that's my last comment <laughs> on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you so much. You're just a well of knowledge and you've been so generous with your time and with your thoughts and thank you for for spending a little bit of time with us this is such an important topic and and really we just we just skimmed the surface i know i could talk to you for hours more about this so thank you for your time well thank you for having me it was a pleasure to talk about this issue it's definitely something that I love talking about, still learning about. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak a little bit more about it. This episode was produced by Dave Emmer. Self Studies is a podcast by Alma, a company dedicated to simplifying access to high quality in network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit helloalma.com. 